Here's a brisk run through some trends in global agribusiness and the food industry. Briefly, I'll pick up some of the implications of these for companies and consumers. First off is rising genetic modification share of agricultural production and the launch of product quality traits for consumers. In 2011, GM crop use totaled 160 million hectares globally. 40% of that, 47% of that, was herbicide-tolerant soybeans, 32% GM corn, 15% insect-resistant cotton, and 5% GM canola. And they were grown in 29 countries, with the US, Brazil, Argentina, India, Canada, and China leading the charge. Herbicide tolerance is the dominant trait, with insect-resistant rice and drought-tolerant corn and wheat getting closer to commercialisation. But consumer-orientated traits are well on the way, including GM golden rice, which should be approved in the Philippines for 2013 and 14, followed by a go-ahead in China, Vietnam and Bangladesh. And then, excitingly, there's omega-3 enriched and saturated fat-reduced soybeans. And, of course, on the cards is vitamin-enhanced rice. Europe still steadfastly says no to GM, but after 16 years of global commercialisation and no horror stories, some naysayers are softening their stance. Gene transfer between close plant relatives may be more acceptable, and GM for fuel and fibre crops may well be embraced. Patronisingly, some say GM is fine for food-insecure countries in Africa and Asia, and maybe even for countries with long-term problems of drought. But it's the big, broad acre crops that gain the most commercial attention, and for good reason. That's just volume of business. Like specialised herbicides for minor horticultural crops, gaining approval for GM vegetable, and fruit for that matter, with specific health benefits, is just going to be too expensive for the foreseeable future to make the R&D and approval investment worthwhile. Trend two is competition hotting up for agricultural land. Biofuels, bioplastics and nudging into land markets, previously the bailiwick of food and fibre products. Corn and sugar both come to mind here as their multi-usage commodities. Their use as green fuel has had a clear impact on overall commodity prices and seemingly have linked inextricably oil and food commodity markets. As companies make more unequivocal and quantifiable promises on their environmental impact and use of renewable inputs, bioplastics for packaging and general manufacture will contribute to placing greater pressure on land prices. Remember, as Mark Twain famously said, buy land, they're not making it anymore. Trend three, it's a minor one, but still important, West Africa is emerging as a serious competitor to Latin America for perishable produce destined for European fresh food markets in the winter season. Deep winter fruits and vegetables for the November to February period in European retail markets in history have been shipped from Brazil, Mexico and indeed the USA, amongst others. Melons, sweet corn, some salad crops, sweet potatoes would be popular items. An emerging trend is that exporters are taking their Latin American production models and applying them to locations in West Africa. Ghana and Senegal, for example, countries with respectable track records for political stability, to take advantage of lower labour and land costs and quicker shipping times to major European ports. This is driven by major retailers looking for ever more competitive prices on out-of-season fresh foods. Next up is concern about food security, particularly in emerging countries, reversing declines in public sector investment in productivity-enhanced R&D. 
Through the 1980s to 2010, there was a discernible reduction in public sector funding for agricultural R&D. Private sector firms such as Monsanto and Syngenta expanded their R&D initiatives to gain proprietary ownership of key attributes in seeds. The high and volatile food commodity price period from 2006 to the present have caused governments to rethink, and via World Bank and bilateral agencies, R&D agricultural investment directed at developing countries has bottomed out and is starting to increase. Concomitantly, there is and will be increased pressure on global life science firms to invest in yield-enhancing and disease-reducing inputs that can be made available to disadvantaged smaller-scale farmers at, quote, affordable and good prices. There are elements here of an increasing social awareness requirements that is expected of large commercial organisations. The next trend expands this theme. I call it CSR evolving into CSV. So what's all that about? Well, corporate social responsibility, CSR, has a charitable tinge to it. Activities that can be undertaken when times are good and resources are available. Led by Unilever and Nestle, however, the notion of CSR is being replaced by CSV, which is short for creating shared value. Underpinning this shift is the view that firms must create value for society if they are to create long-term value for their own shareholders, and indeed if they are to be given the license to operate by society. Michael Porter of Harvard University has championed this shift in business strategy from what's good for General Motors is good for America to an unequivocally profit-driven view that what's good for global society is good for global business. This is a profound shift in the way that businesses will operate in the future. It's likely to catch on, I think, as it is based on commercial self-interest, but has the prospect of delivering triple wins to consumers, society and individual firms. Watch this one. Next up is closer and longer-term relationships in the supply chain to protect brand value. Consumers, citizens and special interest groups are becoming more interested in the values of major corporations and the degree to which the corporates live these values. So what? Well, corporates are making more specific promises about their products, processes, and treatment of the supply chain partners. For the big FMCG companies, the largest part of their value, corporate value, is wrapped up with the value of their brands. The integrity of these brands must be protected at all times. Yet these products are made up of ingredients produced around the world by often hundreds of suppliers. The brand owner requires these suppliers to carry the brand integrity torch on behalf of the brand. The more promises a company makes on its website, the more difficult it is to switch ingredient suppliers for, say, simply a lower price. The socialising of business, I'm talking CSV here, not public ownership, so corporate shared value, not public ownership, and the quintessential importance of the brand will ensure increasingly that supply chain partnerships will be longer lasting and supply chain partners will need to both share and live their commercial values as one entity. Next up is consolidation in global supply chains and polarisation in manufacturing. Global power brands at one end and artisanal story products at the other. 
Global manufacturers are, continue to are continuing to focus on product categories in which they can dominate, shed businesses where they are not in the top three by market share, and concentrate on global power brands that are brands with more than a billion dollars in sales, through which they can gain maximum leverage in production, scale, and negotiating leverage with retailers. For example, Nestle with its famous Nescafe, Unilever with Magnum Ice Cream. It's for good reason. Net profitability for these power brands is substantially higher than for those products on a long tail, often two, three times more profitable. Nestle's been on a shopping spree, providing an example of a major player substantially consolidating its position in the infant nutrition business through its purchase very recently of Pfizer Infant Nutrition, which has particular strengths in emerging markets. Kraft taking Cadbury in confectionery is another. Nothing new in this trend, of course, Monsanto and Syngenta have been blithely dominating the seed industry for years. Food is intrinsically less profitable than non-food products, such as household cleaning, uh, over-the-counter medicines, beauty care. And global FNCG must continually appraise their portfolios for future strategic direction. P&G, Procter & Gamble, long a player in food products, has essentially exited the food industry and is left only with its upmarket pet foods, IAMS and Ekenhuber. Its arch-competitor, Unilever, has too much invested in food globally and must rely on accelerated expansion in high-growth emerging markets to maintain margins and placate peevish investors. At the other pole, smaller, local, regional, national companies are exploiting more niche opportunities and crafting stories around provenance, supply chain partners, artisanal production practices, etc., appealing particularly to consumers when they are in slower food mode. There is a substantial challenge for companies stuck in the middle, without scale or story, and facing retailers hot foot to rationalise minor brands and increase private label presence. Next trend is rising market share of store brand or private label, depending on what you want to call it. So supermarket-owned label. Linking to the previous trend, private label share is in growth across the globe and has accelerated through current tough economic times. What's more, the three-tiered good, which means cheap, better, which is regular, best, three-tiered model of private label has spread globally as retailers albeit slowly learn more about brand management. Tesco in the UK has gone a step further and launched venture brands, which are products exclusive to Tesco but not bearing its names. These products are designed to compete directly with major FMCG brands that in the past have not been targeted by private label. Chock-a-block ice cream and chock-a-block chocolate bars are examples of Tesco exclusives. This is a big step up for a retailer, as going head-to-head -head on branding with the likes of Kraft, Nestle and Unilever shouldn't be done lightly. Branding is in the DNA of these majors, and it is still relatively new territory for most retailers. Another example in Australia, Woolworths has placed ads for a selection of its premium private label, for example, Select Chips, so that's Woolworths Select Chips, in consumer magazines. A novel step for a retailer who in history has largely shouted about low price and expects suppliers to pay for advertising. Next trend is continued pressure on the food service sector. Financially constrained consumers have reduced expenditure on eating out. 
However, not all companies have suffered. McDonald's have had a barnstorming three-year period, and not only in emerging markets, where, by the by, they've been outperformed by Yum Brands with its KFC and Pizza Hut offers, but McDee's has done superbly well in slow, no-growth Europe, offering a recession-busting value product and a premium offer for those wanting a treat. It's been very successful for the big game, as has expanding the mealtime offer to snacking and coming up with a revamped breakfast offer. What is clear is that the core eating out consumer, typically younger, eating out alone or with friends, now regularly checks online to see what deals are available as chains, food service chains, mimic retail offers, such as bog-offs, buy one, get one free, pervasive use of dis- discount coupons, family eat for £20, for example. It's a slippery slope for food service in terms of squeezing margins. But reliance on retail-type promotions seems essential in difficult times as grocery retailers target eating away from home consumers with attractive offers, such as Asda Walmart's Big Night In, that's beer, chips and pizza on special for the boys, or chockies and fizzy wine for the girls, without overly gender stereotyping, that is. And the dine-in for £10, which we get in the UK, including a main, side and dessert, plus a nice bottle of wine, which has proved so popular in the UK. That's a real steal. In short, food service and food retailing are clearly converging. Next up is changing retail format mix for grocery in developed countries. In Europe and North America, shoppers are electing to undertake the big shop in those big barns of hypermarkets less often and are using convenience top-up shopping more frequently and dropping into smaller supermarkets located closer to home. This is a very helpful trend for those in the fresh food business because short shelf-life products suffer when shoppers buy in bulk and shop less often. When the trend is to shop on an as-we-need-to basis via convenience stores, often part of a major retail chain in the UK, like Sainsbury's local Little Waitrose, Tesco Express or M&S Simply Food, etc. It's good news for, say, fresh berry suppliers or chilled ready manufacturers. You can see the threat to food service here. Why order a relatively expensive Indian takeaway when you can pop into a Tesco Express store just around the corner from your apartment and pick up an Indian meal for two for six pounds, for ten bucks, and a bottle of Australian Plonk for a fiver on special. Five percent of Tesco's UK grocery sales are now ordered online, although the most popular method for delivery is for the shopper to pick up the bags at the store when passing. This is called pick and click. Click and pick, I should say. In dense urban areas, I see online shopping with some combination of delivery and self-pickup booming over the next decade. How does that suit your product? A combination of low-cost warehouses, not high-cost supermarkets, robotics for picking, nighttime deliveries and -and click-and-pick pure shopper convenience will drive online grocery shopping to double-digit market share figures in the UK and other markets by decade end, by 2020. Watch my word. Over the same period, big and small firms will be using direct-to-consumer delivery for their products and bypassing retailers. Old-fashioned food retailing is under pressure, and as it should be. Life is too short and too busy to spend hours in some godforsaken barn of a hypermarket, rubbing shoulders with stressed, angry fellow shoppers who are intent on bullying you in the checkout queue and bumping into your vehicle in the car park. 
Internet-based marketing will continue to grow in sophistication and bring advantages to firms big and small. The opportunity to access niche markets is just so splendid. For example, an online store specialising in, say, gluten-free products is commercially practical, whereas opening a bricks-and-mortar store for the same would be more challenging and certainly more expensive. I was much taken when my eye caught a small ad in the back of a gardening magazine recently. It was for an online dating agency, specifically for, for vegetarians and vegans. Brilliant. Next rate. Fair trade and other green social labels. What's happening here? Well, like Cafe Direct in history, Rainforest Alliance and Fair Trade has they've done their job and increasingly will be sidelined but respected for their contribution to stimulating change in treatment of small scale producers and raising environmental awareness. In coffee, tea, chocolate, and by twenty twenty palm oil, major players and particularly those with valuable brands, will have transformed their relationships with supply chain partners, as I mentioned before, and will have moved beyond fair trade and the like. The motivation will be unequivocally commercial, seeking to pay producers more, but for more, I better, more consistent produce of higher yields that will provide a higher integrity ingredient base for their great brands in consumer markets. Next up, something organics. Organic product sales and changing market positioning. It's been tough times in some developed country markets for organic products through the continuing recession. Clearly, organics have a secure long-term future. The issue really is, but what will be their market share? Will it be 3% or will it be 30%? Likely, it's going to be nearer 3 but it depends on the product category in question. Smart, organic companies are switching tack from the sometimes holier-than-thou approach to one that fastens their product firmly on to the burgeoning consumer trend for natural ingredients and products, a la as nature intended, and the great taste attributes. So organic becomes almost a secondary attribute, as in, oh, by the way, of course our product is organic, but you should buy it because it's got a wonderful taste and it's all natural. Next trend is emerging and Asian companies purchasing Western brands. At last, Bright Foods of China, partly government-owned, by the by, has managed to acquire a Western food company with a substantial brand, Weetabix, the ready-to-eat breakfast cereal, to tuck into its portfolio with its New Zealand Sinlay dairy joint venture and its Australian Manison food distribution firm. Back a few months, Thai Union Group of Thailand hooks, pardon the pun, the branded seafood company John West. Tetley Tea, of course, is owned by the Tata Group, who have the iconic vehicle brands Land Rover and Jaguar, if you please. There will be a lot more of this type of activity to come, but not only from emerging country companies. With the forecasted decline in the Japanese population, expect to see Japanese companies with a disproportional amount of total sales being domestic looking around for opportunities even in slow-growth Europe and USSA. USA, I should say. UCC Holdings of Japan has just purchased United Coffee in Europe, the largest independent coffee business on the continent. 
on the grounds, again, excuse the pun, that Europe's population is forecasted to at least be static rather than full reverse, as it will be at home in Japan. Expect to see Asian brands arriving in Western markets, too. Japan's Hello Kitty is a case in point, which adorns, of all things, bagged salads in Italy and confectionery right across Europe. Last one now, you've probably had enough. Regional and bilateral trade agreements more popular and practical than multilateral trade agreements. I'm not saying that the current MTN, multilateral trade negotiations, are dead. But... In the current economic climate, forging a comprehensive MTN seems most unlikely. However, there is increasing concerns around the world about access to scarce commodities, whether to be food or farm inputs, or rare metals for that matter. One way to improve access to these scarce or at least volatile commodities is to forge special agreements, government to government, bilateral, or firm to firm. You've got to watch that your country or company is not disadvantaged because of a newly struck government-to-government -government trade agreement. The Pan-Pacific Partnership provides an example. A trade agreement providing tariff-free or tariff-reduced access to Asian and Australian, Australasian markets for North and South American companies, and vice versa. It's fine and dandy if your country is in the PPP club, if it's in the Pan-Pacific Partnership club. However, if your country is out of flavour, as Canada may be because of reluctance to allow access to its poultry and dairy product markets, then traditional export markets such as Japan for Canada could prove too difficult to compete in because other PPP club members, such as Australia, now have a significant reduced tariff advantage over you. Got it? It's a bit tricky. Look... Enough is enough. I've rabbited on now for 20 minutes or more, and no doubt some of you are now slumped over your desk in the gentle arms of Morpheus. Waggy waggy! I hope there isn't some useful stuff buried in my blathering. My trend list is by no means comprehensive, but thanks for listening, and onwards and upwards.